welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. The Panama Papers, five years on. In our latest podcast, recorded as part of a series of interviews with the leading investigators who have uncovered major international financial crime scandals, Themis host Frederick Obermeyer, author of the Panama Papers, and Gerard Ryle, director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, give us a unique glimpse into their enduring frontline fight against abuses of the global financial system by the corrupt and the powerful. I'm delighted to welcome Gerard Ryle, who's the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or the ICIJ for short. Gerard has led international teams of journalists working on the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers investigations, the biggest in the history of journalism. Under his leadership, the ICIJ, which is a non-profit organization that relies entirely on donations, has become one of the best known journalism brands in the world. And Reporters Without Borders have named Jared himself as one of a hundred information heroes of worldwide significance. Before joining the ICIJ as the organization's first non-American director in September, 2011, Jared spent more than 20 years working as an investigative reporter and editor in Australia. Jared is also an author and TED speaker and has won or shared in more than 50 journalism awards from seven different countries. Welcome, Jared. Um, And also joining us today is Frederick Obermeyer, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author, and current deputy head of investigations at Munich-based Süddeutsche Zeitung, Germany's leading daily newspaper. Along with his colleague, Bastian Obermeyer, to whom he's not related, Frederick initiated and coordinated the groundbreaking Panama Papers investigation, which they then wrote up in a best-selling book that I know some of you will have read, but others may not have. Frederick's work focuses largely on tax havens, corruption, extremism, and intelligence services. He has taken part in numerous award-winning investigations besides the Panama Papers, notably with Jared and the ICIJ. Frederick has received a range of honours for his work, including the CNN Award and Germany's Journalist of the Year Award in 2016. So, Jared and Frederick, before we travel to Panama, I think it's really important that we talk about why we're here today and why the fight against financial crime is so critical. At Themis, we're really trying to change a perception that's all too common across businesses, a perception that tackling financial crime is mainly a tick box or a compliance activity. Regulations are one thing, but they exist for a reason. They exist because financial crime has very real and destructive impacts on individuals, organizations, societies, economies, and our planet. Financial crime devastates businesses whose data is leaked in huge hacking operations, pensioners who are scammed of their life savings, populations whose healthcare systems are crumbling because of corrupt politicians, 
and many, many others. So Frederick, throughout your career as an investigative journalist, you must have seen many of these human, social and environmental impacts firsthand. Are there any particularly poignant case studies that you could share with us today to help us understand why this fight against financial crime is so important? Well, first of all, um, hello, and it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Um, I think for me, the Panama Papers are essentially the best case study when it comes to this topic, because I must admit, I shared a similar view uh, as many out there in the industry when I started to work on corruption and money laundering um, um, cases. I thought this is a, it's a very technical thing, um, and it's all about legal uh, legality and illegality. But when um, in 2015, an anonymous whistleblower um, calling himself John Doe reached out to my colleague Bastian Obermeyer and me, um, we pretty soon learned the different aspects, what financial crime means. Because financial crime is crime that touches every part of our life. Um, in the Panama Papers, we found, for example, traces um, of a Russian pedophile ring um, and the, the guy who was running that ring basically hit his money um, with the help of financial, uh, of financial service providers and shell companies. We saw um, international um, businessmen who were basically, with the help of corrupt elites, plundering uh, whole countries in Africa, while huge parts of the population, for example, in Guinea, were still not having enough um, uh, to basically feed the children three uh, meals a day. We also saw the normal stuff that we all uh, know, at least in Germany, everybody connects for share company. That's tax evasion and tax avoidance. But um, when we speak about corruption and, and um, um, money laundering, this means that the illicit gains of, crim of crimes that we do see every day, um, that we do see when uh, com companies are basically um, plundered, when we do see that drug cartels are selling um, their products um, to huge amounts of, of, of uh, individuals out there, um, when we see weapons traders, and when we also see stuff like the, the war in Syria. This is something that is dominating, or unfortunately in the last month, it's not that's dominating anymore, but it's, uh, we do see the, the devastating effects of the war in Syria every day um, when refugees are coming to, to um, Europe and searching for a, a peaceful place to live. And this is also financial crime. And financial crime is not them coming here, but the reason why they uh, have to come here, the war. The war in Syria is financed with the help of shell companies. It's financed again um, with the help um, of banks and financial service providers um, who in my opinion, only tick the boxes, but do not see their responsibility, our responsibility, the responsibility of all of us. Thanks, Frederick. And as you say, I mean, the book really brings out some of these case studies of real impacts. You mentioned the case of the Russian child sex trafficker, for example, that was the chapter that was really shocking to me. And um, you also mentioned what has happened since Panama Papers in terms of the continued financing of the war in Syria. Um, so Jared, as director of the ICIJ, you've, you've led global teams of journalists uncovering harrowing tales of fraud and corruption. And why is the fight against financial crime so vital to you? 
And have you had any experiences that you want to share with us today that have really brought home its importance? Well, I think it's sort of, like you said, it touches every aspect of society. And because it does that, it's actually a really good story. So we're journalists and, you know, our job, just like a priest is to minister to his flock or a banker to mine money, our job is to find stories. The reason why ICAJ takes a, a real um, interest in this is that it, it just continues to give good stories. And I'd say that's because essentially what we're talking about here is secrecy. And I would say that, you know, to borrow an old phrase, you know, secrecy corrupts and absolute secrecy corrupts absolutely. And that is everything that Frederick's just been talking about. Once you have um, no accountability for the movement of money or you're able to hide the arms smuggling or, or people smuggling, then you're going to continue to have good stories. I mean, for me, this all came about when I was working in Australia. I mean, my introduction to the offshore world and to this world of secrecy began with a very sophisticated fraud that took place here about 15 years ago where this man came along and claimed to have invented a, a magic pill. And you put this pill in your motor vehicle and it made the fuel last 20% longer and got rid of all of the toxic emissions in your car. I mean, it was a complete fraud, but this man was able to raise $100 million from investors here. And he got the government of Australia involved and was able to use our embassies around the world to, to take part in this fraud. And what he had done is he'd essentially set up this company in the British Virgin Islands and created millions of shares in the company and was able to sell those shares, which as we all know, are completely worthless and pretend that this was a, a real company. And he was able to hide the movements of money and pretend that, that the, the shares he was selling were actually um, sales of his product. The product itself, it never existed. Um, and that sort of led me to this world. And someone at the time said you know, to me that I would never be able to get to the bottom of this because you would never uncover the, um, the stories out of the British Virgin Islands. And that was really a challenge. And I guess that was a challenge that I, you know, I started, um, started me on this journey. That theme is for us, we're continually kind of surprised by just how sophisticated and highly planned some of these criminal attacks can be. And at the moment, it's of course, through cyber, and we've seen during COVID, really just the heights of um, intricate planning that these criminal attacks can reach and the, and the effects that that has on you know, ordinary citizens. Um, but going back to the Panama Papers and, and the book that we're discussing here today. So 11.5 million documents sent through encrypted channels, secretive records of over 200,000 offshore companies, 400 international journalists working day in, day out over the course of a year. An astounding investigation described in a book that reads like a real life thriller. So Frederick, I wondered if I could turn back to you as the author of this expose. For those in the audience who haven't yet had the chance to read the Panama Papers, could you possibly walk us through what happened, starting with that very first ping from John Doe, who you've already mentioned. Panama Papers started with an encrypted message that was sent to my colleague Bastian Obermeyer. It was um, basically asking if we were interested uh, in data. And to be honest, this is questions that we receive quite often. Like Jara, I would guess, is uh, getting asked this question nearly every day, and if not tens uh, times a day. Um, and as a journalist, you normally, it's the normal answer is, of course. And then um, 
you basically ask more questions to learn what it is about if it's a story in the public interest. Um, sometimes you even from the first messages can get an, a gut feeling if this is a serious person or if this person on the other end is only boasting and in the end uh, telling you bullshit. But with John Doe, it was different. Um, it was a matter of fact communication from the beginning. And John Doe asked us if we would inter be interested in data from the financial service provider Mossack Fonseca, a law firm that was based in Panama. And today we all know Mossack Fonseca. I think everyone, especially uh, in the industry, knows who Mossack Fonseca is. At that time, point in time, we were lucky that we have already heard the name once because in another investigation, we stumbled across um, a company that was run by Mossack Fonseca. And at that point in time, we basically had reached a dead end. We couldn't find out who was the ultimate beneficial owner of that company. So when we first heard that somebody's offering us Mossack Fonseca data, we were like, okay, maybe we can solve that uh, mystery. But we pretty soon realized that this is not about uh, this one story. That is by far bigger. Because when we clicked through the, uh, the first documents, and we literally clicked and read through all of them, um, we stumbled across um, heads of states, heads of government, uh, Mexican uh, drug cartel members, uh, organized crime groups from Ukraine. And more and more data came in because um, Mossack, uh, John Doe from the beginning only gave, gave us a part like testing us if we were really interested. And we went through this and we saw so many traces to scandals all around the world. And we received more and more um, data and time. And in the end, it was more than two point terabytes of data. If you want me now to explain what two point terabyte uh, what two uh, terabyte is, don't ask me. It's a lot. It's a hell lot. Um, and we basically understood that if we, the two journalists in a let's face the facts regional German newspaper, if we would go on clicking through those documents and reading them all, this would be a lifetime's work. Also, it was thrilling and it was pretty much from the beginning an addiction. Um, because there were so many leads and you could understand the whole system, how Mossack Fonseca helped um, criminals to hide their money. Because for us as Germans, it was great to see that Mossack Fonseca was organized in a very German way. Um, it was uh, properly organized. So we had folders and in one folder you had the whole chronology from the, fun, uh, the uh, founding of a uh, uh, company through the communication um, and the back and forth between the company, the UBO or other sub financial service providers. We also saw the tricks that they were using, that they were well aware of the fact that they had to hide some of the UBOs. So they didn't call them by their name, but they called them Winnie the Pooh or Harry Potter um, to not leave uh, a paper uh, trail in their internal documents. We saw them um, basically adapting to new forms of regulations all around the world. So for example, when several banks um, started asking for the UBO of companies who ran an account, Mossack Fonseca came up with an amazing um, trick because they were like, okay, the banks are asking us for the UBO. So let's us find someone who can, might pose as the UBO and behind the UBO, we have the real UBO, which is basically um, they tried <laughs> to circumvent uh, the, 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 the 
the um, letters of the law. And when Bastion and I clicked day and it also night through the, the documents, we started lists. So where those documents lead us to, to which scandals and which uh, continents. And we ended up on all continents. So pretty much, uh, pr pretty soon we realized this is by far too big um, for us and also for our newspaper because um, we are a German-speaking newspaper. Our audience is German-speaking. So we have, and that's also a sad part, um, our audience is focused on the European Union, on, the, on what's going on in the U.S., a little bit still Latin America, but what's going on in Africa, for example, doesn't make huge one-page or multi-page um, feature series in our uh, newspaper. But we saw so many details um, and uh, bits and pieces where we realized that those might help journalists, for example, in Africa to solve mysteries, to solve um, uh, scandals and to find the real um, criminals um, that helped, for example, uh, to plunder the African continent. So we thought about what we could do. And before the Panama Papers, we already had the pleasure and honor to work with ICAJ. So Jar uh, basically had invited Bastion uh, and me to be part of the so-called offshore leaks investigation. Then we were part of the Luxembourg leaks and the Swiss leaks investigations. And those were investigations where other journalists um, basically shared documents they obtained, documents they obtained with a large audience, uh, with a large group of journalists. So we basically thought, well, this could be the model. Um, how cool would it be us sharing data with the ICAJ and thereby enabling hundreds of journalists all around the world to investigate um, the data? Because we thought, well, when we, the two Germans, are already able to find dozens of traces of scandals in this data. Imagine what a group of 100 or even 200 journalists um, could find. So we did something that at that point in time was still something new um, because um, journalists are, as the financial industry, a very competitive space. So you do not normally share um, something, uh, or I think in, in the words of the financial service industry, you don't share profits. Uh, with others. Um, and in the, the media industry, you don't share a scoop normally with others. But we were of the opinion that it's our responsibility um, to make this uh, data set available to more journalists because it would enable us to uncover the, the whole extent of what is going on in the financial uh, service industry in tax havens in Panama and BBI in Cyprus and Malta because we realized that this was the first, the, the first leak where we could really see all the little bits and pieces, all the details of how this whole uh, offshore machinery works. Amazing, Frederick. And, and it's also extremely well captured in a documentary that I would really recommend to everyone because it really tracks live how how you kind of how this data was revealed to you and 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 how you responded and really the international scale and nature of this leak and of the response was just astounding and as you as you just said that that cross-border collaborative secretive um new type of journalism that this gave rise to um i think is one of the most kind of interesting aspects of the whole story as well so I just wanted to touch upon that a bit more and, and bring you in, Jared, now. 
because um, as Frederick said, um, you know, you received a call from the Deutsche Zeitung and, and Frederick and Bastian soon after this anonymous whistleblower started sharing all the data with them. And then the book describes how you flew to Munich to see the data with your own eyes and talks about the glint that you kind of had in your eyes as you raced through some of these records at first. So could you tell us a bit more about this excitement you felt when you realized that the scale and the volume of the information that was being shared with you? Well, every journalist loves information. So of course, it's like going to a birthday party when someone comes to you with, um, at that point, um, I think John Doe had shared about a million documents with the Süddeutsche Zeitung. Um, we were pretty familiar with the with, with the company Mossack Fonseca, so we knew what we were dealing with um, almost from the first day. There is a little bit of a backstory to that, which Frederick might be, um, I don't know. Uh, we had a second, second set of documents um, that we had already got before John Doe ever appeared on the scene. It was a much, much smaller set of documents on Mossack Fonseca, but the Süddeutsche Zeitung and the ICIJ had obtained that several months before John Doe ever appeared on the scene. And that was pretty important to us because we were able to see some of the, the way that the company set up and also some of the clients. So we knew that their client list was pretty interesting and we were able to see through a small little sliver of that information through the first data set. But that first data set became very important to us later because you know, the first um, whistleblower that gave us the information, we knew who that person was. And we knew that the information was authentic. One of the big challenges we had and all the journalists had at the beginning here was that John Doe was an anonymous source. And when you have an anonymous source, you have a second level of sophistication you've got to go through to prove that you're not being set up or that the, you're not being directed in a certain direction, that in fact, what you're seeing um, is a piece of journalism and not a piece of propaganda. And so why we were so excited at the beginning when I got the call, the first call from, from Bastian, Frederick's colleague, um, was that it was Monsac Fonseca. And here was a company that we knew quite a lot about at that point. And what was interesting is that the John Doe was already saying that this was just a sample of documents. So we thought, well, if we've seen a small sample already and it's exciting, then how good could it possibly be if there was even more? So after I got that call, I think that was three weeks later, I was in Munich and we spent two days going through the new documents together. And there were new names. There were new things. So we knew that basically this was that John Doe was telling the truth. And at that point, I sat down with um, Frederick's boss because I was determined at that point that it should be a, an ICIJ investigation at this point. And so we came to an agreement with him. Um, uh, we all sat around and there was an argument about whether we should, when we should publish. And I think at that point, this was around April, I think, 2015. And at that point, um, the boss of Sudarchi Scientung wanted everything done by September, which was a ridiculously, you know, impossible deadline. But at, at that point, I felt we had to agree to it. And, you know, the three of us were looking at each other going, this is not going to be possible, but we want to do this. We want it to be an international investigation rather than a newspaper investigation, a one newspaper investigation. So we agreed to the ridiculous deadline, and we can explain later how we managed to change that. And then I left Munich because I knew the next big task for me was how am I going to get the international media interested in this? Because we still only had about a million documents. And then we had the smaller, so even with the two of them together, it was less than 1.2 million documents, which was not enough 
considering that we've had previous investigations in this area with much larger data sets. Um, you know, people mistake and everyone thinks that we got 11 and a half million documents up front. That's not what happened. John Doe sent the documents piece by piece to sort of exciting during this entire year. So we would suddenly have 2 million, then 3 million. And that was a real technical challenge for us because we had to re-index um, every single document every time they came in to make sure that the journalists could look at them. But I guess I can go on from there. But after I left Munich, I went to London and I had a lunch at the famous Frontline Club in London. And I had the BBC and the Guardian there. And I got them excited about this story, told them about the possibilities, told them that Sudorchi Sai Tung had um, this new source online that we were going to get loads of documents. And at that point, I signed them up. And so at that point, I had three uh, media partners involved because I knew that if you can get the big ones involved, it was going to be easier afterwards to get the smaller media partners involved. So my next call, say, to the Le Mans newspaper in France, it was, I have Sudorchi Sai Tung, I have the BBC, I have the Guardian, are you on board? It was a, a much easier conversation for us. But at ICIJ, what we had to do then is go around the world and gather the reporters together for this collaboration and, and, and basically sign them up to secrecy for a year. What an operation it must have been. I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, and then just reading the book and looking back on it all, I mean, it really is one shocking revelation after another and on, on such a global scale. Now, I finished one chapter and I thought it can't really get any worse. And then the next mentioned an even more high profile politician or an even larger sum of money. So, Frederick, could you possibly share with us a couple of the stories that shocked you the most as this investiga investigation unraveled? Well, it's really hard to, to pick uh, one or two or three because there were so many um, of their stories. I actually was... Um, shocked um, by the behavior of the Icelandic prime minister, because, I mean, this might not be the biggest story uh, of the Panama Papers, but for us in Europe, having seen the impact of the financial crisis, having seen what happened in Iceland, what politicians promised to the public, um, how they um, promised to behave better, um, to have the lesson learned um, from the financial crisis, and then seeing the Icelandic prime minister basically hiding um, his shell companies from the public, hiding the connection of his shell companies um, and their connection to the uh, uh, banks that failed in, in the, during the financial crisis. That was shocking to me. Um, for me also, um, it was very shocking um, to see um, traces of the uh, scandal around the iron ore um, mine in, in Guinea um, mm -hmm. to basically see how Western companies, how Western businessmen are trying to get access to very lucrative um, mining and resource assets by um, basically, in my opinion, it is something that uh, experts would call bribery. Um, and to see basically how um, something that on the paper looks only like, oh, this is a shell company. This is a shell company that has an account and there's money flow flowing through their account. But then seeing what is it used for in practice in Africa and what at the same time, when you travel uh, through the country, when you travel to Guinea, when you basically see children starving um, and basically uh, uh, parents telling you, and in this case, it was a uh, colleague of mine, our Africa correspondent who traveled there, who are basically were begging him to give him um, 
money or food to basically feed their children. And then seeing this is such a rich country and this is how uh, that is basically plundered um, that the money, the, the, the gains that they could get from all the resources that they have in the country, that they are getting out of the country instead of uh, being used to invest into a society and invest uh, in the children in the future of such a country. That was for me really shocking. And then a, a case that was very interesting um, and was thrilling for us was also the case about uh, Sergei Rodugin, um, a businessman. Now I can call him a businessman, <laughs> but at that time he was only a musician. Um, and I mean, we, we stumbled across this name uh, on contracts worth uh, several hundred millions of dollars. And we Googled that name and found newspaper clippings about Sergei Rodugin, allegedly only a cellist, a good friend of Mr. Putin, and who told the Western newspaper that he is only a musician, no businessman. And at the same time, we found this contract. And this was basically the start uh, of a month, several month long investigation in that basically ended up us seeing Mr. Roldugin in the middle of a center of shell companies that were used to funnel billions of dollars out of Russia. And then basically seeing the reaction afterwards when they still claimed, well, this was only money uh, being used to buy music instruments. It's like, hey, come on, uh, don't fool us, don't fool the public. Because if this were true, then there must be huge buildings in Russia full of cellos, um, because with this amount of money, you can basically uh, buy an army of cellos. So, and I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Panama Papers was also that it showed us that this is not a problem only of Russia, not a problem only of the African continent, a problem of Latin America, but that's a, a global part. Basically, every government um, does contribute to this problem. This is not only about Panama. This is not only about Cyprus. It's also about the US, where um, till quite recently, several states um, offered services where you could basically set up um, a shell company without having to providing that much info. There's this famous um, case study um, that is, was in many um, states in the US easier um, to basically set up uh, a shell company than getting a library card uh, so that you have to provide more um, identity uh, or proof of your identity to get a library card than a shell company. And this sh shows us that, and I think that was the, the good thing about the Panama Papers. It was not only about one country. It showed that this was several pieces um, fitting to each other. And then in, in total, it's, the, it's a whole machinery. It is, of course, governments and parliaments that do um, basically not um, close loopholes in the country and sometimes even um, make this a huge industry um, to basically to provide secrecy, to sell secrecy uh, to customers. It is banks um, who help their customers to set up and to use um, those loopholes. It is financial service providers. It's some, some, sometimes law enforcement um, who are not collaborating enough, in my opinion, who are looking away because investigative money flows is, sorry for my French, a pain in the ass. It's so much work and it's difficult. Of course, there's easier investigation. And um, for I've spoken with many investigators um, in the past years and many of them told me like, yeah, of course, you can get famous 
if you find somebody who is who is still in a piece of art. You can get famous um, if you find a, a kid that was kidnapped, but you won't get famous normally if you find one million dollar or one hundred million dollars in the BBI or in Cyprus or or the Cook Islands, because this is hard work and sometimes it sounds boring. But if you look at the whole extent of the problem, normally if there's a stolen piece of art, there's also a connection to. Uh, to the, to the secrecy world, to the financial service industry, because those crooks who st uh, steal art normally want to sell art and then they have to hide their gains. Um, also, if it's like, if you look at kidnapping cases, this is also um, criminals who gain sometimes a lot of money uh, out of ransom and they have to do something. They have to, they have to hide this money. And how do they do it? They do it with the help of shell companies um, because they want to launder the money. So I think that is where both worlds fit um, together. Uh, and I think that's something that we as journalists had to learn in the past, I would say, decade. If I Google or search in our archives of Süddeutsche Zeitung, I think we did amazing reporting on tax havens in the past. In, in Germany, it was mainly about Switzerland, Luxembourg, and Liechtenstein. But we didn't connect the scandals to the real world. We wrote and colleagues of mine wrote large stories about where the money is flowing to from which foundation to which stiftung to which bank account numbered bank account in switzerland but the stories did not focus on the price that we all have to pay what it means to the normal people who cannot afford um, to use such services because that's also part of our reality the offshore world is a world that is only accessible um, for I don't need to tell you um, um, for people who have a certain amount um, of money. So I think the Panama Papers were there for a story about inequality. They were a story about basically all problems that are basically um, a challenge for us as society. And there were also a story about how everyone basically com contributed to the problem. And everyone, I must also include me and my colleagues as journalists, because we didn't focus, in my opinion, on the price that we all have to pay uh, because we do accept um, the secrecy world. And Frederick, one thing you really bring out there is kind of time and how, you know, you as journalists had lessons learned from that and, and how you mentioned the US states that until very recently had financial secrecy laws in place. So I wanted to ask about, you know, how this has changed and how this continues to change as a result also of the Panama Papers revelations. So you published the revelations just over five years ago. And I think it's really interesting to look at some of the action that your expose has galvanized. As outlined in a hard hitting recent ICIJ article that summarized some of these consequences. Citizens hit the streets in protest they threw bananas and yogurt in Iceland and rocks in Pakistan. Governments fell. Authorities launched hundreds of tax probes and criminal investigations, many of which continue to this day. So, Jared, um, if you had to choose a few of the most important reforms that can be traced back to the Panama Papers investigation, what, what would these be for you? I think probably the biggest blow was to, to secrecy because people didn't know what was going to come next. You know, we've had 
revelations like this in the past, but nothing of the scale. And I think it was really the first time that, you know, a lot, lot of people, a lot of governments, OECD, others, stood up and started taking notice of this. Because I started seeing, like, like Frederick said, the larger implications here. You know, I noticed that recently even Joe Biden has jumped in on this and said that corruption is a national security issue now in the, in the United States. And the reason why is because, you know, it does destabilize democracies and it does create in, inequity. And I think with COVID now, we're beginning to see that the consequences of inequity. And so there's a, like, like Frederick said, you cannot just see this in, you know, in isolation. It's got to be seen in, in a bigger context. I mean, look, you can see the, you know, I mean, the headline things, three governments fell because of the story. The governments of Pakistan, Iceland and Malta. Um, you could say it was the beginning of the end of David Cameron in the UK. Now, we know we went and we started tallying up all of the taxes that governments around the world um, began to collect after we published um, the basic details of the Panama Papers we published on our Offshore Leaks website, which had been running for a number of years. The government's tax offices went and looked at that and started uh, sending out please explain letters to people. So far, I think that is now up to 1.4 billion US dollars that have been collected by governments around the world. And then we had changes in law in something like 52 countries. I mean, the story was unprecedented. And I don't think we'll probably ever see a story like this. I mean, it is kind of like Watergate all over again. Um, and I think it'll be talked about for the next 20 or 30 years. It was certainly the biggest story of the decade. And, and I think it was just the shock and awe of so many stories from so many journalists in so many countries um, all happening. And, and, you know, there were a lot of dramatic scenes like the Frederick mentioned earlier, the Icelandic prime minister. I mean, that was a pretty dramatic footage that was spun around the world where he was interviewed and then walked out of the interview. The next day was the first day of parliament, by pure coincidence, by the way, in Iceland. And you had the entire building surrounded by people who were throwing, as you say, yogurt and bananas at the building and demanding him. You know, in a country like Pakistan, you've never had a leader fall because of journalism for this was the first time ever. And it took almost a year of public protests and of court cases in Pakistan before that happened. I mean, the story there was that the we had found in the Panama Papers that the Pakistan prime minister, his children owned property in, in London that had not been declared. And, and basically that opened up a whole Pandora's box of problems for him in, in Pakistan. In Malta, of course, you know, again, very dramatic story there and, and a very sad story there where one of the journalists who was doing work following up the Panama Papers, she wasn't part of our original investigation, but her son was, because her son was the person who built the system that allowed the journalists to look at this material. He was a computer programmer who worked for ICAJ. His mother was assassinated um, in Malta, Daphne Caruana Galizia, um, about you know, nine months after we published because she continued to probe into the stories. And that led to a huge political scandal in Malta. And, and again, um, a very tragic outcome. I mean, it was the first time, I think in a long time that a journalist had been assassinated in a European country. And it opened up again another complete Pandora's box in Malta because we'd identified Malta as being a tax haven. People hadn't even seen it as a tax haven until Panama, Panama Papers came along. And now it's, again, you're looking for consequences. We just blew the lid over, you know, we just blew it open and, uh, and a lot of secrets came out.
Exactly. And it's fantastic to see some of these initiatives, like, I mean, the US Corporate Transparency Act that was passed earlier this year, uh, ongoing reform to the transparency of beneficial ownership registers across the EU and indeed even in British overseas territories. So some really important reforms, I think. And from our perspective at Themis, it's always so encouraging to see such interest in financial crime, including through these intricacies of global investigations and offshore havens and shell companies. I'd like to turn back to our brilliant panelists, uh, Jared and Frederick. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts, words of wisdom or brief final pieces of advice for us all around the table today? You're wise. I'm still searching for wisdom, but you're by far, you're by far more wisdom than I, so. <laughs> Uh, look, for me, it's as long as there's good stories in this, we'll con you know, I think journalists will continue to pour over it. And again, I'll go back to that point again, as long as there's secrets, there's always stories. So, you know, eliminate the secrets. And, you know, if you're in, in a position to eliminate them or going back to what if you have um, a guilty conscience or if anyone out there wants to impart knowledge to us, you know where to find us now, which is, um, yeah, we're here. Thanks, Jared. Frederick, did you have anything to add? I think, uh, and if you um, want to support ICIJ's work, because Gerard didn't uh, say that explicitly, I think Gerard would always be happy um, for donations um, to help us and help ICIJ um, to organize, run the next uh, new project. There will always be a new project. And um, normally um, there will always be new projects on financial crime as well um, so ICAJ would be more than glad if um, you could support ICAJ and also as Gerard also already mentioned even if you don't um, support or decide to support ICAJ or other groups um, subscribe to a local newspaper uh, that helps uh, journalists to do investigations from a local to a global scale. Certainly Frederick a very laudable cause that we at Themis fully support. So I want to say a huge thank you to you both, um, Jared and Frederick, for your time and insight today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you and to hear some of your first-hand experiences investigating these stories of abuse of the global financial system by the corrupt and the powerful, often really at the expense of ordinary people. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.